0: spoke chrisley was about 18 months ago have you had a good 18 months um
1: yeah good thank you very much got this book done
0: (laughs) yes the book is the defiant a history of football against fascism best cover of the year i hope this gets it nominated for awards
1: oh thank you well do you know what it was the origins of that was that um i always had it in mind when doing this uh, obviously the 1930s is a, is one of the kind of predominant periods of, that's covered in the book, and the artwork of that time, the fonts of that time is obviously very Art Deco, and the, politi- the political photo um, posters of that time, you know, think about the Spanish Civil War, for example, which is what this was inspired by, and I just picked out some Spanish Civil War posters, and I, um, you know, sent it over with some suggested fonts and said, this is what I'm after, and uh, they knocked it out of the park, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's that kind of, is it futurism? Was that the genre of just artwork?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that's more the sort of communist era, isn't it? That sort of futurism thing. But um, yeah, definitely, um, yeah, just just the the shapes and the fonts and the types of fades and stuff and the sharp lines and the the symmetry as well, which is, I love Art Deco. And I just just thought, if I'm going to cover this period of history in depth, I need to sort of um, be true to the actual, you know, um, the the, the artwork as well.
0: Uh, this conversation is September the 16th, but the book is out on the day that this chat goes out on October the 10th. You can find a breakdown, as you can find most things pertaining to uh, football, travel, culture, history, at uk. But what's this about you ending this podcast? Say it ain't so, Chris.
1: Um, yeah, it's pretty busy. got one last series of ten. Um, it's become, as a podcaster, you know it's like. It's a very, very competitive space lockdown didn't help because people weren't going to football so much and so i sort of and weren't listening to podcasts as much so i was like okay let's see what happens with the numbers numbers didn't necessarily grow um and it's very competitive it's very time consuming i do it for a hobby it's not my job so um something had to give unfortunately so i'm still right i'm still gonna be writing on outside right um I'm not going to be podcasting anymore, or for now anyway, maybe in a year or two I'll be different
0: about it. But well, we'll I'm, I'm sort of winding down the audio just because I don't want anything to do with this World Cup coming up, which we'll get to, but yeah. we've got 100 years of anti-fascism, anti-everything to get through, because this book yeah. is the fruits of your endeavours. It is the, the apples falling from the orchard of research, and uh, a lot of uh, the... Material for the book, The Defiant, A History of Football Against Fascism, 12.99, one of the best value books of the year that you'll get. There is knowledge on every page, but a lot of it comes from the Outside Right podcast. So before I ask anything else, was there one uh, either interviewee or story or anecdote that brought you up short more than any others in a book where a lot brings you up short? Because there's a lot of fatality uh, in this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. I mean, it's just, um, it's an, a, as a topic, it's an area that a, a lot of uh, books have touched on the areas of it. So there's loads of books on, say, St. Pauli, for example, uh, or Rio Vercano. These Vercano. These are sort of modern left-wing movements that have been covered quite a lot. If you look at the history backwards, there's lots of been written about uh, Italy in 1934 World Cup and the propaganda value from Mussolini there. Um, and so there's been, you know, some of it's out there and quite well known, um, but then there were new stories that I hadn't necessarily come across before when until i started researching this book and some of this content as you mentioned has been either covered on the podcast or i've kind of test run blog posts on outside right beforehand which are no longer up there by the way so you can have to exclusive content in the book but one of those stories was académica de coimbra which um uh the portuguese football club which was uh, run by students in the 60s uh, it's now a professional club, but in those days, also it's closely linked to the sort of university, the oldest university in Portugal, one of the oldest in Europe. That was fascinating because it's it was deep into the sixties. Think about nineteen sixty nine when the occasion happened, just after the nineteen sixty eight kind of student uprisings across Europe. So they were getting emboldened, and, and Portugal was under dictatorship until nineteen seventy four. Um, but you know, from nineteen twenty six to nineteen seventy four, and this is one of those incidents we think like actually it's really recent history, actually it's the sixties you know so that's like my parents lifetime mm. and it's like they had an amazing cut run at the same time that the students were being kind of forced or some sort of students who failed male students that failed were being forcibly sent to fight in portugal's kind of colonial wars in africa where it still had some colonies um and so they were protesting against that process and they effectively you know shut down the media the, the regime couldn't afford to have this disruption on television. You know, thousands, tens of thousands of students in the Estádio de Jamor, which is the national stadium of Portugal, where Celtic had won the European Cup two years earlier. So people might just recognise it from that footage. That's the stadium they're in, and um, yeah, they they made it to this incredible cup run all the way to the Portuguese Cup final, and just stories like that just. The boldness of individuals, you know, in the face of police oppression and things like that, all the way through history, really, when you, your actual life is a threat and things like that. Within living memory, um, not just in Portugal and Latin America, but also, you know, even going back further into the to the 30s, loads of sort of examples of, of, of bravery, really. And that's why I kind of part of the reason I call it the, the defiant. But, um, yeah, there's lots of stories out there that haven't been necessarily covered, in, not covered in great depth anyway in English language.
0: Wasn't the film with Daniel Craig about the Warsaw Ghetto uprising called Defiance? It came out about ten uh, years ago. That
1: was set in Ukraine, actually. It was called, De- De- yeah, it was called Defiance.
0: Yes, oh, yes, it, yes, it was And you begin in Ukraine. I mean, this is just a magisterial book. If you're going to do a swan song, um, then this is it. Um, you start with this death march, the death death match that wasn't really a death match.
1: Well, it's yeah. I mean, people know it as the death match. Uh, it's been kind of mythologized, as you mentioned, probably due to post-war Soviet propaganda mostly. But yeah, I mean, it was the inspiration for Escape to Victory, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. Anyway, yeah, this match took place. It was not uncommon for oppressed peoples in World War Two to play occupying Nazi forces at football. And obviously it's a, it's a distraction and it was also a bit of a leveller. So this match that took place in Kyiv in 1942. It was part of a league set-up. Anyway, there was lots of games going on in this particular team, FC Star, which came from a bakery, but actually was made up of former Dynamo and committee of players. Obviously they won, <laughs> despite the bias of the ref, despite the fact they were probably very undernourished and due to intimidation as well, but they still won. And yes, four players... Did die in the subsequently subsequent weeks, but there's no kind of direct link between the match, you know, as, as were per the propaganda story at the time. They, and they were all for, for different reasons as well. It didn't, didn't take much to get kind of arrested in, in those days. Mm.
0: So that's where you start. Um, I wanted to group these two questions together. You put a great piece on outsideright.co.uk about your 25 years of ground hopping, which I hope mm. we return to. Uh, later in this chat, but 25 years ago, you wrote a university thesis about mm. I don't know what the title was because I don't think you said it, but it was about Spanish football.
1: <laughs> Actually, I think I've got it in my uh, see if I can find it in my uh, in my photos while you're, while you're asking the question. Oh, uh, you've
0: got your well, in the meantime, while you find it, uh, I'll uh, list the things that you write in this ground hopping piece. You say San Siro in the rain uh, was. Both uh, oh, yeah. uh, was one of the things you enjoyed. Chilean fans good, Hungarian fans bad. Um, you had um, a, a fab encounter with former Watford and Tottenham defender Ramon Vega at Glasgow Airport and complimented him on Celtic's victory. Yeah, it's been nice. Night, yeah, and and you say that the old Wembley was overrated. What was the Empire Stadium? Uh, hmm. It was just it was there.
1: Uh, well, I mean, the thing is with the um, the old Wembley, for those who remember, I've been to the, the new Wembley as well. It was built in the 1920s. It wasn't even built as a football stadium. Let's not if you remember that. Um, it wasn't even used by England until after World War Two. Um, okay. So, which is something that features in my book. This book, actually, um, the, the thing with the old Wembley is it was way out of town. It still is way out of town. It um, had loads of pylons in the way. It was difficult to, when you're trying to get out. You had to you obviously get it's only one main tube station, so you're held up. In your descent, you know, back to the tube, so you're stopped by a line of police horses, and then you made to wait, and then you have to go again. And it's um, uh, the facilities I didn't think were particularly great. And um, if you are in the cheap seats, and it was you were ground level, pretty much very difficult to see the other end. So and there's a greyhound track in the way. So mm. I, um, yes, it's there lots of big thing events happen there as they do at many stadiums. But at the same time, I'm not nostalgic for it. I like the love that we're going back to Deco again. I love the white towers. I wish they'd kept them somehow, um, but the modern ones just. An, uh, uh, a very good functioning big yeah, stadium. It's, it's good for engineering
0: gigs,
1: yeah. Well, I'd rather it was actually, and I said this at the time, I think if, if you can have a national stadium, I think they should have stuck it in the centre of the country. I think it's pretty unfair that to drag people down from Newcastle, Manchester, Liverpool all the way to, to not even into London, but actually
0: right to London,
1: <laughs> outskirts yeah. of, you know. And when, when it was built, if you see the pictures of it, it was in fields. You know, it's obviously... Become suburbanized since then. So, um, but I'm not. I'm not nostalgic for the old Wembley. I didn't like it. I think it was time for an upgrade.
0: No. Well, that that will start a debate. Uh, you say you still want to go to Japan, um, Dortmund, yeah. Goodison Park, and Buenos Aires.
1: Yeah, I've been to Buenos Aires, but I timed it bad. It's pre pre decent internet era. Unfortunately, I, I went through it, and at the time there were no matches on, so I did manage to get a game at the Centenario in Uruguay, um, but I didn't manage to. Get yeah, to me, I drove past the Bombonera, by I did yes. get to any games. So it's a bit silly of me, really.
0: That, but that they'll
1: was, have yeah, you back. I love Argentina.
0: You know, I've never been. Um, you, the, the, the dissertation that you wrote, was it on the fans? Spanish football and fans?
1: Well, it's, yeah, it was Spanish regional identity expressed through football, case study of Real Madrid and FC Barcelona. and um, Because, obviously, they're the two dominant powers. And in this, as you mentioned, it's actually... Um, 24 years ago, so late no, late 90s, I actually submitted it 25 years ago, I was yes, ground hopping there, but the, um, back in the 90s, it was the real rivalry was a little bit different, and I think it still had more of a regional connotation than it does now, I think it's more of a commercial rivalry, I mean Barca didn't even have a shirt sponsor in the late 90s um, you know, the season I was living in Madrid was the season that Brian, so Bobby Robson was manager um, with coach Jose Mourinho oh, yeah. at, um, at Barca with yeah, with Ronaldo up front, Ronaldo Nazare, uh, the original Ronaldo for many of us. This was under uh, Luis Vigo, of course. So, it, yeah, a really good lineup. But I only lived like ten minutes walk from the um, Bernabeu in Madrid, so I did like to, I did go there sort often. But I'm not a fan of, of, of Real Madrid.
0: So. Yeah, you can't. But not no, it's go, interesting yeah.
1: how I mean the regionalism thing in Spain. I was trying to explain this to someone else um, recently. It's different from um, you know other countries because they are so predominant, right, in terms of. That those two will win nine leagues out of ten or whatever it happens to be. And then maybe you'll get a, an Atleti coming up and winning something. Or, you know, earlier in the century, Valencia, Depor, they had good runs. But usually it's going to be Madrid-Barca. And that can often define kind of who you are in the sort of, you know, in the Spanish politics, so to speak. And likewise, you know, regionalism is a big thing in Spain, similar as it is to in, in Italy and lots of other places. And we don't really have politicised football in England, at least. So it's not um, something we'd necessarily be familiar with. We might have sort of like regional, I hate the word banter, but you know what I mean, yeah, a yeah. bit of rival. Sometimes it's more vicious than friendly, which is, you know, in certain cases. But it's never anything to the same level as it is in, in Spain or Italy. Yeah, and also
0: sort of made-up rivalry. This weekend was due to be Brighton Palace, and that's been postponed. It was postponed initially mm-hmm. because of a train strike. But they would have train found trials. a way... People would have found a way to get to a game that would have gone to coaches. Um, I was reading about Real Madrid in your book, The Defiant, Chris Lee. Mm. And it uh-huh. made me think of Liz Truss. <laughs> who, right. who is a chameleon. Remember, she started as a, right, an yeah. anti-monarchist Lib Dem and now she's yeah. desperate to cling to a post-Elizabethan world and try and... It's, her name's Mary. It's what? not even Elizabeth. Uh, uh, she's Mary Liz. She's not Liz Mary. She? Uh, but she... Okay. In the same way that she um, is a chameleon, Real Madrid seemed to be chameleonic. There's a great line that I'll always remember: Real used Franco, Franco used Real, and of course this was the era of Franco in the fifties when they signed all these players and they were the original world-beating or continent-beating team. So, does my theory hold water? Real is Liz I think
1: you have. I think you have to. I think you have to um... Uh, I know exactly. You're mentioning the uh, academic that I quoted, who who had studied this uh, this period of Spanish football, and I think you have to take a nuanced view with all of this. And I keep saying this. I say this at the beginning of the book. Actually, it's like when you think of a club. Don't. I mean, a lot of people look at Madrid and they'll look at Lazio and they'll look at Hellas Verona and they'll go, "Oh, aren't they like right wing clubs?" It's like, no, not necessarily. Anyone. You, most people just go to a match to watch a team. Usually it's their local team if they like the fact they're successful. And they enjoy going, but yes, there is an element of fan bases that you know bring a reputation. The thing is, with with Madrid, the special case about Madrid is obviously Madrid is the capital of Spain. Spain is a country of many, many, well, seventeen autonomous regions, and lots of um, you know. So Madrid is already, as the capital, is um, <laughs> set up for you know um, you know for, for people to sort of uh, rile against, I suppose, in a way. And then the, the club became, at some point in the fifties, like I said, very associated with. With with uh, the regime of the time, but this, uh, actually, over time, Madrid has just been the club of of the centre. Really, so it started off by started by aristocrats um, during the kind of the, the monarchy period of Alfonso the Thirteenth. He is the king of Spain who gave or bestowed the title Real, as in royal, to lots of you know clubs across the country. Uh, I think Madrid got theirs in 1920, so the 18th year of their existence, um, and then Madrid. Oh, I mean, so Spain became uh, under the Second Republic in 1931. So this democratically elected government of the people and uh, that forced the monarchy out, actually. So Madrid, Real Madrid became Madrid again. Um, and this is why in Spain they were called Madrid El Madrid. Um, so in Spain, La Real, as in the royal, is actual Real Sociedad. So do not, you know, just for your listeners to make a mistake, uh, Madrid is Madrid Yeah. and Real is actually Sociedad. So anyway, the, the key thing with with Madrid is that, yes, and then during... during at the end of the war, well, during the Second Republic, the chairman of Madrid is actually a guy called Sánchez Guerra, and he's actually the guy who proclaims the Second Republic outside, uh, in Madrid at least, um, outside the um, post office, uh, which is, people might know in Fibeles. It's a big white sort of wedding cake type building. Uh, Fibeles is the um, the fountain where Real Madrid celebrate their trophies, by the way, when mm-hmm. they win. So it's kind of got a big kind of Madrid connotation there. But the um, what he – so basically it was like effectively – a leftist club at that point. Uh As you mentioned, after the war, uh 1939, the Spanish Civil War, this is what I'm talking about, um, Madrid-Chamartín Stadium is actually in ruins. It's been used to barricade, of, you know, all the boards have been taken to to barricade the city against um, Franco. It took three years to break the siege to get in. So it did, it was a big part of the defence and, and uh, a lot of their players have gone abroad and things like that. And um yes, yeah, so it's basically needed rebuilding and, and um, so the, at the time in the 1940s when, when Spanish football was restarted Atleti, uh, the rivals Atletico de Madrid or Atletico de at the Atheon as they were known at the time yes, because they yeah. were part of the Air Force uh, or merged with an Air Force team they are, you know they win the first Liga back and that's um, under Ricardo Femora who was a great goalkeeper former of, of Madrid and Barca and so Real at, at Madrid at this point is is like, you know not competitive and they uh it takes the former striker um uh, and now president santiago van to recuperate them effectively and so he he kind of rebuilds them and then and in the 50s as you mentioned they become this um big i guess the first kind of transcontinental uh, giant team really because they obviously win you know the first five european cups and this is when the Franco who did actually like football unlike Mussolini unlike Salazar unlike Hitler Um, he was into football and he recognised its value as well and so um, yeah it becomes the sort of sporting embassy of of his regime but then after he goes or he becomes closely associated with it and of course the the cup finals named after him is often held at the Bernabeu and then after he dies in 1975 there's this period of uncertainty and then um, you know the the Democracy returns, it's a monarchy again under Juan Carlos. But Madrid is still kind of associated, I guess, with, with the centre because there's these arguments about autonomous rights of the different regions. And um, you know, there's the hangover still of, the, of a lot of the unresolved issues from the, from the Francoist period. Meanwhile, you've all got the subtext of Basque nationalism and Catalan nationalism and, and my other minority languages. And so it's like there's, there's a lot going on in Spain. It's
0: the short answer. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you do group it with Portugal. You mentioned Zamora. He is one of two goalkeepers who don't die because they're goalkeepers. I found that stunning that someone, <laughs> is it Zamora? Someone puts a gun to his head. and they goes, oh, sorry, sorry. Love, love your work, Zamora. Go ahead. What, a, what an amazing oh. 10 seconds of his life that must have been. Um, was that the Zamora one he was
1: in a he was he was came close to death, didn't he? Um there was another one like you said who, who um whose name escapes me. But he yeah, it escapes in, me too, He might
0: even be Italian.
1: Uh no there was a yeah, it was a Spanish guy who was in, in he was in who was recognized by the Real Madrid goalkeeper who happened to be walking in La Coruña exactly the same time as him while he was being marched off for being uh, part of a uh, thought of as part of a rebel group, and you recognise him. So no, you can't recognise. You can't arrest this guy. He's he's a goalkeeper for uh, whichever club it was, and um, he gets away with it as well. So by a whisker, yes, you got two goalkeepers kind of surviving the war. Uh, some others weren't weren't as lucky. Unfortunately, as you said, uh, we talk about uh, Andres Haro Gardey, who was a, um, a very promising striker for Sporting Espanyol, and he you know, didn't quite. Um, he died in an aerial attack when they're still sort of looking, you know, trying to find his body, really. It's one of thousands and thousands of bodies that are still kind of laying undiscovered and unidentified. But they're doing this big push, you know, for DNA and trying to recognise and find, find victims and, and um, you know, get them, get them really, not uh, proper burials, type think.
0: It's the Rathing Santander goalkeeper, Paco Trigo Garcia, who was uh, recognised recognized by Ilaria Marrero. Uh, mm-hmm. whose life was spared. Um, I imagine that you're going to talk in quite some detail about Italy, which is the big first chapter. The book comes out exactly <laughs> a century after Mussolini's march on Rome, which brought fascism yeah. into existence in Europe. Uh, of course, Serie A was founded as a nationalist league, giving Italy yeah. a sense of unity through sport. Um, English yeah. names were removed from all these Italian clubs. And then you have the 38 World Cup, which actually saw anti-fascist demos. Are we going to see, with the World Cup coming up, that is clearly, it shouldn't be there at all. Not just Mm. Italy 38, but Argentina 78. This is not the first time, and sadly, with Saudi Arabia knocking about, it won't be the last, where politics really does trump sport and makes the whole sport quite ludicrous and perplexing.
1: Um, Well, I mean, the, the key difference between... Um, Argentina, Santiago, Italy, 1934, which the hosts won, and they were always meant to win, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, Qatar won't win 2022. <laughs> so from, from
0: Ye of, of little here, well. faith. No, it'll be Brazil or Argentina <laughs> or France, because uh, Messi and Mbappe and Neymar, it's one of them. So whatever happens, um, Nasser well, al Khalifa.
1: I'm going to be one of those people who says they're going to boycott it, but ultimately I will watch bits of it, um, probably highlights.
0: Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think I'll read about right. it more than I'll watch it. It's very nice of Marcus Rashford to be injured for it, right. seemingly. Uh, but people will go back to this book. The Defi- I mean, the chapter on Argentina is um, its kind of in micro what Reese Richards is going to tell me, I hope, and he's already mm. told you. About uh, mm. Argentina. Blood on the crossbar is a hell of a title for a book. But do you expect players to boycott? I know Norway was so keen to boycott it that they didn't even qualify mm. for it. But do you expect mm. individual players to say, uh, to use the historical precedent of someone like Seth Meyer or Paul Breitner and just not go?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I haven't seen any signs of that, have you? No, I mean, I not at all. I think it's very difficult now with the money at stake and the sponsorship at stake um to actually say that and i think it's a different kind of uh controversial uh, controversy isn't it i suppose in many ways i mean i don't i mean that's the thing about my book it's it is about expressly about um right ideologies it's not about you know sports watching anything like that so i don't really cover Qatar I do mention it in the 90s you mentioned when I'm talking about Norway and, and that's the Valaranga section mm. but I'm not um to be honest I don't think I'm, I'm qualified to talk about that in many ways it's uh I don't I mean it'll happen and it'll you know leave a nasty taste I <laughs> but ultimately I'll be interested to see what the legacy is will pe- players get Will there be a, a big league in Qatar as, well, as, as a league there already that people still go to yeah. I don't know really
0: God, imagine if England win. It doesn't bear thinking about because we won't. But just imagine if England wins a World Cup. In, that's why Gareth Southgate is not saying anything because he, uh, he knows that England could win. And if you shit on the World Cup, it's not going to look very wow. good. And he's going to lose like a sinecure at FIFA when Graham Potter becomes England manager in 2024. Who cares? Yes. Um,
1: well, it might be sooner than that. You never know. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> Four months it might after taking happen. over at Chelsea, Graham Potter is the new England manager. No, it'll be Emma Hayes well, say, or no. Serena Vigil.
1: Um, well, do you know what? I mean, I don't... Um, I mean, without going into, like I said, the wise and wise, who's going to win? I think it's a very open field this time. And I think it, the, diff, the one advantage England has, and Wales from that matter, um, or any European team really, we just got up and running, it's not the end of the season. It's their match fit, their match tough and uh, they'll care about it a lot more than they did say at the uh, tail end of the, the season when they lost 4-0 four at home to Hungary. I mean, whatever it was, was it 4 or 5?
0: God, I think oh, it God. was 4, but we've got the the non-jingoistic match against Germany coming up, which is not going to be jingoistic in the slightest, um, but that will have I happened... Think, I don't think
1: England Derby Germany has the same meaning anymore. Uh, I think England fans have got that sort of um, problem out of the way now, the Euros and also the women's final, but I'm sure that it's not quite what it was that rivalry and move on to something else
0: yeah well maybe we should reinvoke that rivalry with Hungary the most fascinating thing that I did not know is that a Holocaust mm. survivor called Leo Horn, or what is it Dr Danger uh mm. was the ref for the England-Hungary game at Wembley in 53 that is a great story
1: yeah I mean he, he survived um by being part of the, the Dutch underground really wasn't it and um uh, Leo Horn, Doctor Van Dongen is the word that, uh, uh, that he used, and um, survived the um, the war. He, he was ended up um, guarding people who had been trying to oppress him at the end of at the end of the war. So he kind of big character, I imagine, and and to do that, and um, he he was invited, like I said, to 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 do the match of the century, yes. uh, 1953. And when England lose to Hungary, they don't lose very often, but they lose big.
0: Yes, I mean it was almost in tribute that England did very badly, but. Um, Southgate has to go. I mean, I, I'm fed up, fed up of football. Um, but at books like The Defiant: A History of Football Against Fascism, which is out on pitch as this goes out today, October tenth, I will be reading so much literature because I won't be watching the World Cup. I must read Dominic yeah. Bliss's book on Erbstein and David Bolchover. Not, not read it. And uh, oh. I think I read an article about it, and I got the gist. David Bolchover, I actually met. I met him at a shiver. Uh, because he knows my uncle, who lost his mother-in-law recently, and so mm. David wrote the book on Bella Gutman, and uh, yes. I didn't know about the curse, Gutman's curse. You know? Do you reckon the curse of the Bambino was lifted by the Red Sox? Benfica, possibly. I mean, they might even win the Conference League, and then all their players leave and go to Real Madrid and England. But um, mm. this curse. Maybe the curse is just George Mendes.
1: Yeah, for those who are not familiar with the curse of Bela Gutman, he he obviously won two European Cups with Benfica. He's the guy who bought uh, Eusebio de Silva Ferreira to the club, uh, having overheard a tip in a in a barbershop. Um, and he, I think, he stole him from under poor Sporting's nose. I think Sporting would you sign him if I'm not mistaken. And um, anyway, so he obviously changed fortunes for Benfica, helped to. And um, when he kind of left over, a sounds like a, a pay dispute, he said, not in a hundred years will Benfica be champion of Europe or something like that, wasn't it? And um, yeah, <laughs> even um, Eusebio, when I think in the 1980s, when I mean, they final in Vienna, I think, were, um, against, I think it must be Milan, and he went to the grave of, of Gutmann to sort of kind of pray for the curse to be lifted. So even, that was in the 80s. So it's like, you know, that, that same period of time has passed again and Benfica still haven't won the European trophy.
0: Mm. So, Uh, Another figure that um, is mentioned in one paragraph, but the whole story seems like a a movie. Billy Marsden, whose life was saved by German doctors, left Holland with all his trophies. Where where did you find this story?
1: I found this in a newspaper. I was just literally going through the British... um newspaper archive which is absolutely essential for anyone doing any historical research and i just basically was looking like holland football or the netherlands football you know in the in a particular time frame and i came across this story of a sheffield wednesday player who'd settled in the netherlands former sheffield wednesday player who'd settled uh, in the netherlands to coach with his wife and they lived on the coast and um the nazis started in Germany invade in 1940 and they they uh, did a beach assault right near his house they had no time at all just to grab his things including his medals the medals they won at sheffield wednesday um and his england caps which included a game against like i said the very first international england played with germany in, in the pre-nazi year that was in 1930 so um during which time he'd had his career saved his life saved in fact by um by German, uh, by German doctors, because he'd, he'd res- sustained a neck injury in that match, which was 3-3, I think, ended 3-3. Yeah.
0: So. I mean, I thought, chapeau, absolute chapeau, <laughs> uh, to you could take a bow, son, for researching that. That is one of many, many anecdotes told in this book. Uh, the other week, I was reading the Times, and Henry Winter was talking to Patrick Bamford at a Football for All event. How does um. Football for All link to Sant Pauli?
1: The thing is with St. Pauli, obviously they've got a big following as the original, I guess, club with a political, left-leaning anyway, political consciousness. Uh, And I guess that sprang out in the 1980s. And in the 90s it started becoming known outside of Germany. And they've got fan clubs everywhere. They've got them in in Glasgow, they've got them in Yorkshire and, and various other places. So I got to speak to I'm one of the fans of uh, the Yorkshire ed- edition of the um, St. Pauli fan club. And um, just to understand what it's, why, what's the appeal of St. Pauli, you know, uh, to, to people ex- outside. And I think you, people do identify with, partly with the politics, You love the football, You want a point of difference, we want something to identify with. Um, hopefully put some good back into the world. And I think the people who spon- uh, who follow, if they if you're off the political, even you you follow some early, you'll probably be interested in the score lines from Livorno and from Rayo Vallecano in Madrid, and you know various other sort of similar sort of ethos clubs. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, it is certainly a, a cultural movement, I think, in many ways.
0: Yeah, and just remind me of the Italian term that pops up in every chapter, beginning with G. Gemelaggio, Gemelaggio, yes, the twinning.
1: Gemelaggio is it's the twinning of, of fans, and the plural of which is, is gemelaggi. So, uh, in case you see it written two ways, there. Um, the yeah, this is where clubs. Um, yeah, they they have a sort of friendly friendly relationship, uh, and that that's the same for clubs all political persuasions. But obviously, um, in the left, the left gravitate towards other sort of similar minded um, left, you know, groups. So yeah. fans of Omanoya, Nicosia, Uh, in Cyprus will will be fans I think they've got uh, arrangements with Marseille and things like that so
0: yeah that was interesting to note Marseille Uh, the image of Che Guevara I I don't know why I sound like Jonathan Ross the image of Che Guevara pops up in all these left wing clubs Um, they're Uh, There are some down at the South Coast. Eastbourne Town is wonderful. It's full of old people and seagulls. Eastbourne Town. I want to go just to just to sing that chant. Uh, And also Whitehawk also down at the South Coast with their no swearing policy. So there is something brewing. We've got the rabble at Dulwich Hamlet where you used to live near. Um, And in fact, Mm -hmm. um, Boris Johnson might well, sorry to mention him, but the well-known non-lefty Boris Johnson might well end up at Dulwich Hamlet um, because he's moving to, do you know this? He's moving to South East London. Is see yeah, apparently he seems um, to be been kicked off the front know, I page.
1: well I mean he' be interesting. if he goes there, I'd be interesting to see what sort of reception he gets, but um, he will be
0: barred at the gate, I would imagine yeah. unless he swears to be kind of gay friendly um anti fascist but yes, not good if you're anti fascist if you're him because he has met some very unsavory characters
1: well. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, football isn't isn't political in this country, really, and I quite like the fact that it's not in many ways. And I don't want ever to get to the point where the country is so um, politically charged that sport becomes political. I think that that we've been very lucky in, until 2016, at least. Um, we were very lucky here in this country. We've never had to press reset on anything like a lot of other countries have and maybe we've built a bit of a complacent with our democracy in that regard and I think we've had a lesson in recent years that you have to take care of these things, otherwise you lose your rights very, very quickly. We'll see how this progresses in the next two years for the next election.
0: It is very um, interesting that your book comes out the week after Lula versus Bolsonaro which, I didn't know Bolsonaro was named after a footballer, Jair. Uh, is, yeah, he so a- likes football as well. Can we see a return of Corinthians democracy, which uh, Socrates was very good at <laughs> pointing
1: to? Well, I they've been, they apparently have been active, apparently, yeah. I oh, mean, they've good. been... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see what's going on in in, in Brazil. Political Football is very political, but you, you mentioned Corinthians democracy. That's a big part of the kind of, you know, helping Brazil... Um, transition from the dictatorship giving the people confidence to go out and vote and take advantage of their vote because they'd had a generation where they hadn't, by the time the Corinthian democracy had come out, it was almost 20 years of, 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 like I said, far-right autocratic rule without a vote and when they did get one, with this sort of thawing that went through it, it was people like Socrates and Socrates, um, Casagrande and people like that who helped give people confidence to go out and vote and change things so football can have a big impact and they, they kind of, they do they do have that that legacy, and the Corinthians fans are very conscious of it as well.
0: I was going to ask you a, a quite long-winded political question, but I don't think we've got time for it. But I, I'll try, and then if it doesn't Go work, ahead. I'll cut it out. But thank you. Thank you very much for this. Uh, before I ask it, The Defiant by Chris Lee, A History of Football Against Fascism, one of the books of the year, 12.99. Please buy it. Please read it, because then he might write another one. Um, although not I do have the... another book planned. Ah, oh.
1: I'm just taking a break. Yeah you, yeah, you need
0: to. you spent 18 months on this. You know how long it season.
1: takes to write a book? I mean, honestly, it's like, you know, I mean, I was lucky. Well, I was lucky. I, I mean, took advantage of lockdown and the opportunities it, it provided time-wise. But, um, yeah, no, it takes a long time to write a book. But I do have an idea for a second. Uh, sorry, a third. A but...
0: third. Yes, the first one is called uh, Origin Stories, which is just as That's good. Correct. Um, but, yeah, in about 10 seconds, does them and us football encourage fans to attack them? if their beliefs are different. So is football not helping things?
1: I think it depends, really, to be honest with you. I think um, um, <sighs> us and them. The thing is, how football thing is about us and them. sport in general is us and them. That's why it becomes political. Um, the question is, um, you know, what we do with that um you know and it depends who you're up against really
0: (laughs) that's Uh, why it's so good with this book because the them are people who are unkind and nasty and shoot jews which and there's a whole i haven't gone too much into that but it it is brilliant uh, the descriptions of how wretched it was for jews in in 19 in the 1940s um but nowadays jews don't get shot um and we must remember that the footballers and referees especially who were jewish uh, who lost their lives wow. for the crime of being jewish and this is wow. a it's a methodical philosophical and um objective account it's quite brilliant this book so congratulations on okay. it and i hope it gets a wide readership
1: thank you and i like i think you've put the point there is it's very important sort of topics to cover and I hope people find it informative and hopefully educational as
0: well.